Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 172. When choosing a tool for profiling Python code performance, should it focus on the CPU, GPU, memory, or individual lines of code? What if it looked at all those factors and didn't alter code performance while measuring it? This week on the show, we talk about scaling with Emery Berger, professor of computer science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Emery talks about his background in memory management and his collaboration on Horde, a scalable memory manager system used in Mac OS. We discuss the need for improving code performance on modern computer architecture. He highlights this idea by contrasting the familiar limitations of Moore's law with the lesser known rule of Denard scaling. Working with his students in the university lab, they develop scaling. Scaling is a high-performance CPU, GPU, and memory profiler. It can look at code from the individual function or line-by-line level and compares time spent in Python versus C code. Emery talks about the recent scaling feature of AI-powered optimization proposals and covers a couple of examples. He also shares a collection of additional Python code assistant tools from their lab. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. So I want to welcome Emery Berger to the show. He's a professor in the College of Information and Computer Sciences at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and welcome to the program. Oh, thank you. Great to be here. Real quick, it's a question on the College of Information and Computer Sciences. How does information kind of evolve in there? I, I'm wondering how that is adapted in some ways, if that's kind of a newer distinction for colleges. Yeah, so it's a, a weird situation. It's kind of a historical artifact, but it's also part of this program that we have. So we have a program called Informatics, okay, which is really more broad, I think, than traditional computer science. But the brief history of this is we started out as a department, and then we became a school of computer science. And then we went to become a college, which is the highest level, um, hierarchically, in a university. And the provost at the time was like, well, you need to incorporate information, like an information school or something like this. And that's the actual cause that, that led to that, <laughs> that name. I was actually, it was originally meant to be computer information and science or something like this. And I, I was at a faculty meeting and I was like, if the words computer science are not in this college, then I am going to go move to a place that still has computer <laughs> science in the name. <laughs> so so yeah. they kept the name, which I was happy about. That's good. It sounds like you have a lot of background in memory management systems. One of the things that you've listed on your blog is you worked on a system called Horde. Yeah. And I was wondering about this background in memory management systems and does it help when, I mean, we're here to talk about scaling, which is a, I'll put your, your words, a state-of-the-art CPU plus GPU and memory profiler for Python. And it has now AI-powered optimizations and suggestions. But does that background in memory management systems, does that help you working on a profiler? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I certainly think so. So the Horde project that you refer to, I mean, something I, I worked on during my PhD and afterwards, and the algorithms that are in Horde got significant uptake. You can actually find a comment in the Mac OS implementation of Malik that cites our, our Horde paper, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So, uh, you know, memory management is a an area where you have to be aware of lots of details of what's going on in the hardware, uh, what's going on in the software. You know, performance really matters a lot for memory management <laughs> because it's uh, so heavily used, right? Like you're constantly creating and destroying objects. And doing all that performance engineering required really uh, understanding what's going on in the system and being able to follow what's going on. So I was already a, a client of profilers at the time because, you know, there's just no way to know. You write some code and it runs a little faster, a little slower, and you're like, well, why? What happened? And some of the techniques that we used for building replacement memory allocators are actually in Scalian. Like I'm using a library in Scalian that, uh, I started working on for my PhD okay. for writing memory allocators. So that's actually, that that code is actually in scaling. Oh, that's cool. You you already kind of mentioned the idea of, the, or at least the theme of several of your talks recently, which I'll include links for, about performance mattering, and then uh, recently injected really matters. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, also another keyword in there is again, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, in these talks, you you talk about how the architecture of computers have over time hit walls. And I thought it was interesting that a lot of people have a confusion about sort of Moore's law versus, uh, you mentioned Denard scaling. And maybe you could discuss that real quick, just like what's the difference going on there and why people might maybe confuse one with the other. Yeah, I, so that's, uh, you know, this Moore's law, Denard scaling thing. Everybody's heard of Moore's law. Yeah. Very few people have heard of Denard scaling. But Denard scaling is really what made our computers faster for all of these years, not Moore's law per se. So Moore's law was formulated by Gordon Moore of Intel, yeah. who said, basically, it appears that roughly every 18 months, the feature sizes of semiconductors, that is to say, the, the size of transistors, were getting some, half as big every 18 months, right? So you could put double the number of transistors on a chip every 18 months. And as this was happening, basically this other phenomenon called Denard scaling was happening, which was that you could increase the, the cycles, the, you know, the megahertz or gigahertz, yeah. proportional to this, this increase in density. And basically the intuition was, if these things are denser, this means that the, uh, well, I, it, let, let's just suffice it to say that the the shorter the wires are, if you will, wires, <laughs> uh, the little etched tiny things on these chips, the faster that the, you know, the communication can happen because speed of light, right? It's actually traveling this distance. And Denard scaling basically said, well, you can actually also increase the frequency. Okay. So we were increasing the frequency along with increasing the density. And that lasted a while. And it was, it was great. And I, you know, I think, so I recently, relatively recently, got an, one of the Apple M1s. Okay. Uh, and now, of course, they have the M2s. And when you shift from the Intel technology to M1, sorry, everybody from Intel out there, uh, but when you shifted <laughs> to the M1, all of a sudden, the computer was much faster. Like, everything ran much faster. And that was the first time I had experienced that in 20 years. And, you know, it used to be, back in the day from, you know, the late 80s or so on, 
chips are just getting faster and faster every year. And you would buy a new computer, yeah, yeah. you know, you'd buy a new computer two years after you bought the previous one and would run more than twice as fast. Yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, it was, it was a time when people openly were derisive of, of optimizing code and, uh, caring about performance because they're just <laughs> like, just wait, just wait. Just buy buy next year's computer. Yeah, this hardware uh, will I, run it faster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So somebody actually, I talked to somebody once in Texas. Uh, so I was a PhD student in, in Austin, and there was somebody at the supercomputing center, and it was a a weird dilemma because it was like, well, we can buy a computer now, like we place an order for it, and then eventually it gets installed, and by the time it's installed, it's obsolete. Yeah, and the new thing is like two x faster. And, you know, how, what is the likelihood that you programmers are going to get out there and optimize things and make them two times faster in 18 months versus the hardware, which just does it magically. Right. And, yeah. and so it was a, a kind <laughs> of a, uh, you know, for them, it was a dilemma, but really it's a great situation to be in because, you know, it, this rising tide was lifting all boats. But, uh, but that is really not the case anymore. I mean, Apple has done amazing things. And, you know, we could talk about GPUs or something, which obviously have gotten faster and faster. Right. But, you know, that's mostly through parallelism on GPUs. And with the M1 and M2, it's mostly because of system on chip and much, much larger hardware caches and stuff. Yeah. Keeping the memory so close to the to the processor yeah, yeah, and all that exactly. stuff. Yeah, it's making, exactly. Those are the interesting speedups that are happening. But generally, like, overall processing, it's you can compare almost like Raspberry Pi products to some other, you know, computers today. And it's like, well, it's not that difference in the base amount of like cycles this thing is going to run, which is kind of yeah, shocking. Yeah. 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 Cause you know, if you looked at the curves, you know, we were supposed to be at the terahertz range by now. Uh, <laughs> and we're still, you know, about three or so gigahertz and you can't really get much faster without, you know, like liquid nitrogen on your motherboard kind of situation. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, though I'm hearing interesting things about, uh, superconductors uh, in the last couple weeks so yes <laughs> we'll see what uh, happens with that we will see we will see <laughs> yeah yeah so when did you start was some of this performance something that you were thinking about at the beginning of designing a profiler um was this something that kind of tied into it and maybe you could talk about the background of like where did this project start up and and how long has it been going sure so i mean i have been working on performance-related tools, really just uh, developer tools for most of my career. We have a profiler, not for Python, uh, but for native code like C, C++, or Rust, called Cause, C-O-Z, uh, which is a very cool, fun kind of profiler that I'd be happy to talk about. It doesn't have that much to do with scaling, though. <laughs> but yeah, the Python profiling thing actually came from my own suffering with performance issues in Python. So what happened was, so I have this website called csrankings.org, which is essentially, it's a metric-based ranking or portal to computer scientists in academia. And it's intended for grad students to be able to select what kind of topics they're interested in. And then it shows them which faculty at which institutions are working on those topics. Hmm. And then they can drill down and click on their homepages and do all this stuff. So to make that scale, I made it a static website and it's hosted on GitHub pages. And this means that there's some processing that has to happen of this database that I don't want to run server side. Okay. So I basically just run it on my own computer and it rebuilds this database and generates a bunch of CSVs that are easily loaded by the JavaScript that's in CS rankings. 
But that process was taking ages. Uh, it was taking just a crazy amount of time. How often was it running? I would just run it periodically okay. because it was so painful. It'd be like, <laughs> well, don't use your computer for 20 minutes. Okay. And it's a Python script. And, you know, the Python script was getting bigger and bigger. And the first thing that I did was I said, well, let me just run it with C profile. And then C profile was really totally useless because it just listed function level information. And you know, yeah. th- I had one big function that was doing most of the work. And it was like, it was, it was pointing like at Maine. Hmm. Yeah, it's Maine. <laughs> oh, you're spending all your time in Maine, buddy. Yeah, it was really disappointing. And then I went and, and looked for line profilers and those weren't very good. And then I was like, oh, but it consumes a ton of memory. Let me run memory profiler. All those CSVs, right? Yeah, yeah. it's processing this gigantic XML file. Okay. Um, I mean, really gigantic. Like I had to write a separate Java thing to parse the XML and essentially downsample it to reduce it in size because <laughs> it was so freaking huge. Wow. So and then and anyway, there's it's kind of a mess. But be that as it may, I was like, wow, there's like no good profilers out here. I was really surprised by this. In memory profiler in particular, it slows down your program by 100x, 1000x. And so, you know, take 20 minutes and multiply it by 1000. Yeah. Like, I don't have time for that. So... <laughs> So then I was like, wow, I, I guess we should be looking at this. And I was surprised to see how kind of traditional the existing profilers were. They didn't look very different from the profilers that were created for C in the 80s and uh, you know early 90s. It was basically GProf. Okay. And I was like, well, this is how, how are we here? Like this is C is not Python. Right. And Python's doing all this very different stuff, especially with data today, these large chunks. So there's like lots of unique ways to look at it. Oh, and also, you know, we've talked offline before we started just that everything is in the data science world uh, or anywhere people are looking for speed, it all is loading into C libraries and other things like right, that. Right, absolutely. So, what's looking at that? <laughs> so, Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it would just tell you, hey, you're spending a lot of time somewhere. And you're like, well, okay, but is that like, is that time I have to spend or is there some alternative? And so one of the first things I wanted to know was what is the, what's the breakdown here? Like, what are the things I can do? Like, one of the things that really, I think this is a problem that we talked about this offline before as well with, uh, with profilers is that, you know, a lot of these profilers have a bunch of information, but like a lot of this information is not useful to me. Like, t- you know, uh, you could, this is not a thing profilers do, but imagine if a profiler said, Hey, you've got a lot of if statements that you're executing. Right. Great. I'll definitely take out if statements, right? It's, <laughs> it's, it's not super helpful. Right. So, you know, what I really wanted was a profiler that would tell me where the problems were, give me really good advice on how to fix them and make the, make the thing run faster or consume less memory. So that kind of helped you develop a, a set of targets that you were going to sort of a, attack and say, you know, what are the realms that we could look into? And obviously you just said, if it's just going to look at functions, that's probably not going to solve it for me. So the, where where did you end up dividing it up then? Yeah, yeah. So the very first thing was, all right, I want to do a statistical profiler okay. uh, that was just periodically sample where we were. I tried to, to implement one using the built-in facilities for using profilers, but I just found, which is what CProfile does, and I just found it distorted the execution time a lot. And I just didn't trust the results. And I measured some of the times and I was like, this, this is just off. Hmm. Uh, so I, I went to use a, a statistical profiler. And the, the idea of a statistical profiler is very 
very simple. You basically, periodically, you set a timer, timer goes off, you wake up and you say, oh, what code am I running right now? And you just do this over and over and over again. Okay. And the ones that you see all the time, that's obviously where you're spending all your time. So it's kind of like a like a track meet and somebody's actually looking at lap times and trying to figure out performance, you know, as the thing's going, not just the overall end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can imagine, it's a great analogy. I, I love this analogy. I'm going to have to steal it. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, you can imagine if you had uh, every person on, a, you know, who's at a track meet had to actually carry something like some big timing device, right. like a giant Flava Flav clock <laughs> on their chest. Nice. Right. And they're running and then, you know, this is keeping track of their their instantaneous time all the time. Okay, this step took this long, this step took this long. Um, it's obviously slowing them down, right? It's distorting right. the actual, ex- their, their actual race is is no longer the way they would have run if they weren't carrying this giant thing. <laughs> but, right. but instead, if you just take a photograph periodically, right, of where they are, you know, who's ahead, right? You, you get a really good picture if you have enough photographs. You get a very good picture with really no overhead. Right, without distorting the uh, the underlying results. Yeah. Okay. So the other thing I really wanted to do right up front was to also trace memory. So this is part of the like memory allocation background. I was like, well, you know, I don't. First, I don't want it to take a thousand times longer. That's crazy. And second, <laughs> if you just tell me my code took a bunch of consumed a bunch of memory, that's like a dimension. And then there's how much time it took. That's another dimension. And I wanted everything together. I wanted a a big picture of what the code was doing, not just in terms of runtime, but also in terms of space. That makes sense. The memory profiler, typical one that would run in, you know, like part of the Python tools that a lot of people are familiar with, was looking at every single allocation and basically documenting that in a way, like kind of like keeping track of every single allocation. So I could see that, again, goes back to the analogy we were talking about of just like, um, now I have all this overhead of like, you know, of tracking how many thousands or millions of potential objects are being created and allocated and and removed and so forth. So it kind of makes more sense to me that the idea of what you're doing with the memory profiling that's happening inside of here. In fact, you kind of set thresholds, I think, in scaling where it, it's only really paying attention to like it bumping up against different sort of levels as it goes, which I, I found kind of fascinating too. I, I thought of the term quantizing uh, as, you know, because I'm into music and, and timing of like sequences of stuff. And I, I think of the same kind of thing. It's like, okay, I'm just seeing, which makes sense, you know, from a sampling perspective, like it's enough information to really see where the problems are, right? Again, it could be, oh, there's a photograph for the, where they're stumbling as they're running along, I can kind of start to see where the problems are. It's interesting that that doesn't take very much overhead at all. Like it, there were a couple of different kind of factors that kind of went into deciding that. I, I, mem- I remember you mentioning that it was around a megabyte or something that it was looking at. And then you said it was in one of your talks, uh, actually like a prime number. And I, I don't know if that's too convoluted of a thing to get into. Yeah, so I, I mean, the prime number is just a heuristic Okay, to try to avoid some sort of like if you if you're allocating things and you're constant the, the the intuition is just well this prime number is a very weird number in a sense and it doesn't like okay. things don't divide into that prime number very well so if you're allocating chunks of memory the chunks of memory that you're allocating are almost certainly not going to be exactly that prime number and then they're not going to divide evenly so you're going to end up with it kind of skewed as you go in the sample but okay. but really that particular approach is not anywhere near as important as the kind of the growth or shrinking threshold yeah yeah which which actually is the thing that matters i mean it's sort of like 
okay, so first, let me just say, Python allocates and frees memory like crazy. <laughs> like, it itself is just a giant allocation machine. Well, it's everything's an object. That's everything's part of it, Everything's an right? object, exactly. It's creating objects yeah. all the time and, just, and reclaiming them and so on. So, you know, doing something that is actually just tracking every individual allocation is just going to occur a ton of overhead just by, by the nature of Python. Uh, and, you know, people have done memory profilers for, you know, for C, C++, and, you know, you want to keep those low overhead as well, but the allocation rates for Python are an order of magnitude higher than for most C or C++ programs. Hmm. You know, in C, an int is an int. It's not an object. You allocate arrays, and you maybe even do more sophisticated things that are just out of reach for Python. Yeah. So... You know, essentially what we're doing is we're just trying to keep track of how high the memory consumption is. So we don't really care, oh, it's allocating and freeing a lot. Yeah, of course it is. It's Python. It's allocating and freeing like crazy. Uh, But if it's sticking within kind of a narrow bound of less than a megabyte, then we don't care. But if it's growing, every sort of one... You can think of it as a mile, a mile marker, right? right? Every mile we'll take, we'll say, oh, and you get one up, one, two, three, four, and so on. And so that's really the insight. The insight is, yeah, I mean, it's it would be expensive. If we kept track of it all the time, so we just don't. Yeah. The only thing we do is we keep track of how high we have gone or how low we've gone since the last time. Yeah, you call them the like kind of high water marks and, and indicating them as you went. And then I thought it was fascinating because like the graphs that the program outputs, scaling outputs are actually pretty interesting. There's an HTML output that you can move your mouse along and, and kind of see the behavior. And so if you have a lot of data moving and this sort of memory allocation happening, this huge amount of chunks, and it becomes, like you said, like a sawtooth pattern where it's like large jump up and then all of it drops back down, that's that's definitely a performance hit. <laughs> Especially, sure. you know, when you think about like, just the speed of memory versus like something that's already in the processor and already working. So where does somebody look if they see that kind of error? Like where do they go and look in their program? Yeah. So in the visualization, the visualization, that particular one that you're talking about is kind of memory use over time. Yeah. Right. So it's it's like, oh, it's going up, it's going down, it's going up, it's going down. And you know, if you see something that is weirdly producing a bunch of kind of whipsawing, right? It's going up and down, up and down, up and down by a large amount. That's a little troubling. It seems unlikely that you intended to do that. Right. And so one of the the cases that we've seen where people do this, there's sort of two things that are pretty big culprits for this kind of behavior. One is when you make a move accidentally between native representations like a NumPy array and Python array. Okay. And you can accidentally do this by, like, you know, using Python indexes or comprehension or something like this. And then it'll be like, well, uh, I need to turn this into a Python data structure. So it's to allocate a ton of memory. And it does whatever Python thing. And then it throws that thing away. Right. The other thing that happened that we found was just a totally random NumPy thing, which is just getting into the weeds for a second about NumPy. NumPy has this thing everybody uses, which is np.array. Uh, an np.array takes a Python array or matrix and converts it into a NumPy one. So NumPy can operate on it. And uh, somebody sent us a piece of code as a bug report, actually. They're like, oh, it's producing this behavior and I, it shouldn't be. And it turned out that what they were doing was they were calling np.array on an already numpy array. Okay. So it uh, turns out that uh, when you do this, NumPy actually helpfully makes a copy of the array. All right, let me make you another one. <laughs> yes, hey, you, you like arrays. I hear you like arrays. Here's some more arrays. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so it seems totally innocuous. You would think it wouldn't do that, but that's actually the default behavior. And it's just one of those weird pitfalls that I had no idea about until we saw this problem. Yeah, that's cool to kind of find these. One of the things that Scalene's doing that is interesting is the the line-by-line analysis. Was that helpful in that circumstance? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this it was specifically saying, here's the line. Here's the line where this is happening. Okay. I mean, one of the, the big differences between like C and Python, and there are many, but one of the big ones from a profiling perspective is that in Python, just a lot happens on a line. Yeah. Right? You can have a line that's doing a ton of stuff, right? You can be like, one line of code, oh, it opens up a web page and it downloads some some content and does a transform on it. Totally normal in Python. Right. You would never see this in C. Okay. Right? This is just not, C would be like there'd be a load command and there'd be something else and something else. It's, it's always much more granular in C. Uh, and so having line-level profiling in in C can be useful, but it's really when you're chasing cycles, you're like, oh, I need to, you know, get this inner loop down to like 20 cycles or something because everything is so fine-grained. But in Python, it's usually just doing tons and tons of work. Yeah. That's, yeah, it's kind of fascinating, like, how many things are, are called, you know, especially if you're calling libraries and methods from them. It's like, you're not even sure, like, what overhead <laughs> is happening yeah. inside of that. Yeah. Yeah, which which is you know which is great. I mean, this is one of the great things about Python, right? It's so convenient to do these things. But um, you know, there's an old saying about Lisp and Fortran, which is that basically something to the effect of Fortran programmers know the cost of everything and the value of nothing, and Lisp programmers know the value of everything and the cost of nothing. And so <laughs> Python is kind of similar in that you know you have access to all of these things. You can just have one line of code that one line of code could be responsible for doing tons and tons of work. And you just don't know a priori how much time it's going to take or how much memory it's going to consume. Yeah, you don't know what the expense is. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly. pretty wild. This week, I want to shine the spotlight on another real Python video course. As you started on your Python journey, you probably encountered a common chunk of Python code and wondered about it, or maybe you even included it in your code and wondered if you were using it correctly. Well, this course answers the question right in its title. What does if dunder name equals dunder main mean in Python? Based on a RealPython tutorial by previous guest and RealPython core team member, Martin Broyce, this video course is presented by Ariana D. And she takes you through not only what does the dunder name equals dunder main idiom mean, but also how it works and when you should use it, and maybe when it's not the best fit. Whether you run code as a script or you're importing as a module, this course will answer your questions on the topic. Real Python video courses are broken into easily consumable sections, and where needed, include code examples for the techniques shown. All lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the search tool on realpython.com. One of the things that you you were doing along in this process, I'm not sure where this came in. I just, again, having watched your presentations that you did at PyCon later, that you showed a chart of other profilers, which I thought was interesting. And I was like, well, how did you measure the accuracy of all these different profilers? How, How did you get those wildly different results in that? Some of it you've sort of explained, like the ones that are doing 
that memory allocation type of thing are definitely weighing down the program a lot because it's sort of sitting on top of it. But were there other things that you were finding as you were, and how did you do this measuring of accuracy? Yeah. So, you know, we, we were just curious. We're like, well, we assert that statistical profiling is better. Okay. I think you can kind of reason it out that it makes sense, like the way I described it. But we're like, well, how much of a difference does it make in practice? So we wrote a pretty straightforward benchmark. The, the problem with profiling and measuring accuracy of profiling is that normally to find out where a program is spending all of its time, you use a profiler, right? (laughs) Right. So then you have to be like, well, this is the, you know, this is the golden one true profiler somehow and everything else is different. And that's not very satisfying because, you know, if yours is the one that you've just decided is the golden one, well, all the others are different and you're the winner, (laughs) you know, hooray for you. So we needed something that provided ground truth, right? So we wanted to be able to know, look, it should say it spent this much time in this function and this much time in this code and so on. So we just constructed a micro benchmark that would allow us to do this. And the way we did it was really simple. We made these two functions or these two chunks of code take different amount of time, and we just measured it from the beginning to the end of these computations using the high-res timer. Okay. And so, so this allowed us, to, as long as it's, you know, the amount of work that you do is much larger than the cost of actually talking to the timer and getting that value, then this is a totally accurate way of measuring this, this cost. So we went and we, you know, basically ran it through a gamut of different proportions and then said, well, you know, what did these other profilers report? And so the profilers that are the least accurate are unfortunately the most widely used. So C profile is one of the least accurate. And the reason is basically because of exactly the situation of checking every single thing as it goes. You know, it uses the built-in facility that Python has called setProfile. And setProfile, there's actually some imp- a totally improved way of doing profiling, I should add, that, that you can do starting with 3.12. But even so, doing it with this kind of trace-based approach where you're actually collecting the information as it goes, it just unavoidably distorts things. Okay. Uh, and you really want to do it in this much less intrusive way of, of doing statistics where you just take these snapshots. That makes sense, yeah. Like, it seems that there are these kind of trade-offs of, like, running additional code <laughs> as opposed to sort of just doing measurements that, that are going to cause that. One of the things I wondered about, though, is, like, in a similar way, how can you look at something like memory leak detection? Is that something you can still do uh, through a form of just sort of monitoring and looking at what's happening as opposed to, you know, trying to pay attention to everything? So how did you come up with your ways of determining memory leak detection? Yeah, so the memory leak detector is yet another sort of let's try to do this with sampling. Okay. So... The idea behind the memory leak detector is, again, I, you know, monitoring every individual thing is very costly. Another thing that memory leak detectors do is they save all of the state of the heap. Like you take a big snapshot and you compare the snapshots. This is problematic actually in Python because there's Python-based leaks, there's native code leaks, there's Python plus native code leaks. There's just a lot going on. And so 
it's and and it's you know groveling through these heaps is not really a great way to spend your your day let's just say <laughs> you know sure. i really wanted a tool that could just automatically find leaks they could be pretty large yeah it's it's not fun you're like hey these two things should be roughly the same let's compare all the heap data structures and do a heap diff and it's i've done it before it's really not productive <laughs> sure yeah, so the idea behind it is pretty simple, but but it took a, a while to come up with it. The idea is that what we do every now and then is we just say, hey, you allocated an object. I'm going to keep an eye on that object. And let's see if I later free that object. Okay. All right. And so I just have some period of time, and I'm just like, oh, I grabbed one. Like It's like a stream of objects going by, and I just grab one. So I grab that one object, and then uh, sometime later, I look to see, I actually have to check every time I call free, but basically uh, the, it goes, oh, I'm going to reclaim an object, reclaim an object, reclaim an object, and I just check, is it one of the ones I sampled? Okay. All right? If it is, then I say, oh, good, it was reclaimed. It's not a leak. Probably. All right? And so I'm kind of accumulating evidence about all of these allocations. Right? So I allocated this object from line 12, and whenever I allocate an object, I eventually see the reclamation of that. That would, if that happens enough, I'm pretty much going to assume that's not a leak. Okay. But by contrast, if I, I, I say I sample an object from line 12 uh, and some time goes by and I'm like, well, time to sample another object. That one was never reclaimed while I was, while I was watching it could be a leak. So I don't know if it's a leak. It could get freed right after I do that, right? The next time I take a sample, it could be like, oh yeah, I, now I freed it, right? So it could be a false positive. But you know, we expect this to be kind of a random process. So we just say, oh, maybe it's a leak. And then if we keep seeing maybe it's a leak, maybe it's a leak, maybe it's a leak, we build up confidence that, oh, it really probably is a leak. Hmm. It's like an interesting QA system <laughs> where it's just sort of like, like, again, doing the sampling and kind of measuring. And it's like, well, typically things happen around here and this is being atypical. And so that starts, you know, start building up the evidence. Yeah, say, yeah. All right, this is, needs to be investigated. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, one of the things that you, you know, you might want to do is to make the uh, the way that you take these samples proportional to the size of the objects. Because if you have an object, if you have a little tiny object and it's leaking very, very slowly, we kind of don't care. Okay. Right. But if you have a big object, then, you know, that thing doesn't take much to leak before it becomes a very serious leak. So we measure this, we call it leak volume. Uh, and whenever we come up with something that looks like a leak, we report to the programmer, hey, the leak volume was this. And if you see it's like, you know, four bytes a year, you're like, okay, I don't care about that. Right. But if it's, you know, three megabytes a second, you might be concerned. <laughs> We're headed for trouble. A raft is leaking. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I thought we could kind of dig into a little bit of somewhat use cases, but also like we mentioned some of the different ways this tool's working. But I always kind of wonder about where in place does somebody look at, hey, I should start doing this. We mentioned performance hmm. and a lot of the things that come up are definitely this use of Python for data science, these large amounts of memory being used, these these collections of other libraries that we mentioned that you might want to have again, evidence of like, hey, what's happening? Why is this maybe performing poorly? But when does somebody look at, like if you're going to generally say, hey, when should you look at using a profiler? You know, what, what is your typical use cases and, and when do you introduce it? Yeah, so I mean, I think 
it does vary, but you know, often it's just like, oh, this code is annoyingly slow. Okay. Right. So, you know, I'm in Jupyter and I'm I'm doing something interactive and I run something and I I get I'm sitting around waiting for a result. Yeah. Right. So once performance becomes a pain point, that's usually the right time to to grab for a profiler. I mean, the thing you definitely don't want to do is to go on your gut instinct and say, oh, I know why it's slow, because you probably don't. Right. The, <laughs> but, but you know what does know? A profiler knows. A profiler knows, right. you know, what's slow, what's consuming memory, at, which often has the same knock on impact of slowing things down. One of the things I haven't mentioned about Scalene, which is really distinguishing, is that it doesn't just break, say, oh, this code took this much time. It actually breaks it down and says, it took this much time running native code, like libraries. Yeah. It took this much time in Python. It took this much time in the system, like executing I.O. So it gives you this information. You know, there are things, like if it's like, oh, it's running native code, it's not consuming I.O. Uh, like, I'm already doing the right thing there. Right. Even though it's spending some amount of time, uh, that is not really a candidate for optimization. Yeah. But if you see something that's spending all of its time in Python or all of its time waiting on I.O., you might think, well, if it's in Python, I need to re rewrite it to use libraries. If it's waiting for I.O., you might want to start using async await to try to hide that latency, things like that. Okay. So that's that's one case, just the, like, oh, it's slow. This hurts me. But, you know, the other case, the other case is like, you know, uh, if you're running stuff on the cloud, for example, the amount of memory you consume dictates what kind of a uh, computer that you're going to actually end up renting. Sure. Okay. And more yeah. memory is more money. Right. Right. So, so, you know, more slow, more RAM means more money. Okay. And so, you know, if you're... If you built a system and you're like, well, I really would like to use a smaller system or a less, you know, a, a sh one that's really shared and has, the, the, it's just cheaper, then doing some profiling will probably help you find places where you can cut cost. Is there anything that someone needs to keep in mind if they're looking at running scaling on a cloud instance and wanting to measure its performance? Are there things that someone needs to keep in mind in, in installing that? Or is there anything unique about that? Um, so the only thing, so we recently added this actually specifically to, to address the concerns of folks using it. So, so scaling is mostly an interactive thing. You say scaling and then you, you know, you run, you write the rest of your arguments and you run it and it produces this web-based user interface. But if you're running something in the cloud, right, there's no browser in the cloud, right? You're connected through something. Right. And you know, you may be running something for a very long time. There's some, you know, people run stuff that's like, that are servers, right? That are out there, not just to run in 10 seconds, but they're, they run for days or something. And then you need some sort of periodic view of what's going on. You need to collect a profile. So we have a way of telling the thing to emit periodic profiles. And you can also specifically say, hey, hmm. send this Python process a, da a dash dash off message, which means turn off profiling. Okay. So you can turn it on and you can turn it off. And whenever you turn it off, it now actually saves the profile. So you can just always get a fresh profile just by doing dash dash off and dash dash on. Okay. So it's like a toggle to, you know, have it output the performance and would it then give you the HTML file to... Yeah, you can have it write, um, you know, normally it produces uh, an HTML file, but it also can produce a JSON file okay. to make it easy to consume. And it does, it also produces one that's not interesting in this use case, a kind of text-based thing okay. um, using the rich library. Oh, okay, cool. One of the things you mentioned there of somebody experimenting on this, uh, you know, 
potential program they want to profile, and they're running it in Jupiter. And I think it was the PyCon 2021 talk. You said, well, we're working on the Jupiter thing. It's not quite optimized and working well now. Um, how, how's that progressed and how's it performing now? Yeah, so I mean, it. I don't recall exactly what I said. Okay. It was in the before times. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, it does work for Jupiter. It The problem with Jupiter is getting in edgewise to be able to profile the memory consumption hmm. is it's we don't yet know how to do it. It's just an engineering question, but have not figured out how to make it work um, or make it work consistently. There's still a problem with Windows. Can't easily do the memory profiling on Windows. It's just that Windows makes things really painful when you want to do this kind of instrumentation. It's super easy to do in Linux and the Mac, and it's virtually impossible to do in Windows. Hmm. Not impossible, but really hard. But uh, but yeah, the Jupyter thing, we can't get the memory profiles out yet from Jupyter, which is annoying. Okay, uh, I'd, I'd like to get that resolved, but, but it works fine at the command line. Okay. Yeah, it sounds like any kind of project like this, you now have a bunch of unique, potentially software or operating system or whatever specific issues you got to kind of delve into. So I find that very interesting. I think like one of them that you hit along the way was trying to get it to behave well with Conda as far as like installing it and so forth. And has that journey gotten further along too? Oh yeah. Conda's, uh, we have Conda. It, it works. That uh, As far as I'm aware, everything is good on that front. Okay, good. I mean, the, the you know, the, the Python ecosystem is just, it touches everything and it's, it's huge. Yep. And so, you know, we've had to learn a lot in this process. Like, you know, you're like, oh, blah, 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 pip, fine. That's not so hard. And then, oh, now we're, you know, we need to actually transition to PyProject because we're using setup. And then there's Conda and we didn't know anything about Conda and how Conda works. And, you know, those, those folks are really busy. So getting them to, uh, to help out, <laughs> uh, it was a lot of waiting. I mean, I'm very graceful for their help, but, uh, but yeah, it's, you know, for, for me and my students, it's been, it's been a great experience. I mean, I have to say the Python community is awesome in general, super friendly, super helpful, uh, super open. It's been a joy to see scaling get adopted uh and you know get so many users but yeah you know i mean every now and then we will get some requests like you know this doesn't run on uh you know uh potato linux 4.7 on you know the raspberry <laughs> pi from the 80s and right. you're like oh, i'm sorry i can't help you like <laughs> right you know there's so many edge cases there yeah yeah so we're, we're trying to hit the big ones i mean i would love to get windows uh support better Windows support, but it's just a, a technical limitation. So going back to the idea of sort of results in figuring out areas that you could improve your programs, what have been some of the low-hanging fruit of performance that you found along the way people have reported to you after using scaling? So, I mean, I think the big ones have been really this gosh, there, there are a bunch of them, but so we have a bunch of case studies that are on the website and they do vary. Okay. A lot of it comes down to inefficient use of the libraries, hmm. which is, I guess, obvious in retrospect, but it wasn't what we anticipated when we created uh, Scalene. So, you know, if you use NumPy, NumPy can be screamingly fast. But if you're doing something where you're like, oh, I'm using a for loop, 
and I'm doing NumPy stuff. Well, then you're moving between these worlds. You're moving between yeah, the yeah. super fast C, C++ world and Python. You're also not giving NumPy the opportunity to like do a bunch of work on a giant object, which can do very, very fast while it's in C land. It can take advantage of um, a vectorization, which is, yeah, yeah. you know, these right super, super fast. You can get giant speed ups by doing vector processing on your chip um, as opposed to doing things one at a time. And so we see a lot of that okay. where people are just like, oh, I was doing something and it turned out it was inefficient, spending a lot of time in native code and had poor utilization. And it's like, well, that's that's what I need to work on. One of the most recent additions is is to add sort of hooks into having AI help potentially give advice. How's that process yeah. gone for you? And um, what are the types of advice it, it, it can give to uh, a potential you know, person who's looking at the poor performance from their program. <laughs> yeah, so it's been uh, so it's been super exciting. I mean, I cannot stress enough how revolutionary this technology is. By which I mean these large language models like GPT three point five and four. The so we've uh, incorporated this into the user interface. There is some work that is not yet incorporated into the user interface that one of my PhD students, uh, Sam Stern, is working on which will push this even further. Okay. But the user interface already uh, allows you to basically select either a region of code or a line of code and, uh, and say, hey, make this faster. Give me a suggestion to optimize this code. And you have to provide your own OpenAI API key, but it's not that expensive. You know, I always tell people, it's like, it's worth a quarter. <laughs> you know, click a button, uh, the magic machine figures out how to speed up your code. This is definitely a good use of your time. And yeah, you know, many, many times it will come up with proposed optimizations that are correct optimizations. They preserve the semantics of your code, but speed things up by, you know, 10x or 20x or 100x. Wow. And, you know, I, you know, sort of know my way around NumPy and Pandas and, you know, I use them, but, you know, it will generate incredible code that just speeds things up tremendously. And, you know, it's really just the click of a button. So all of the things that we described in our paper and all the case studies that we have the code for, we tried with the uh, the AI and it was able to find as fast or faster optimizations automatically. Hmm. So the paper you're referencing, and I'll include a link for it, is the triangulating Python performance issues with scaling. Is that the one you're speaking of? That's the one, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I'll definitely include that and all the other talks we kind of mentioned. This is a question I brought up when I had Pablo Galindo Sagato on when we talked about memory. And as again, the audience I have uh, varies uh, depending on the topic, but it's usually kind of intermediate people that are wanting to learn more and trying to figure out how they can use these tools. And one of the things I thought about was, let's say you do get that new job at, at a company and you have this task of like learning a code base and learning how to work in it and so forth. Do you think a profiler would be helpful in that process and what kinds of things would it help you discover? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, profilers are a kind of program understanding tool, yeah. but they're not for understanding, you know, what the code does functionally. It's really about understanding what it does um, in terms of its performance, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, where it's, it, let's, let's say uh, it gives you a resource-oriented view of your code, like where it's using the CPU and where it's using the memory and so on. 
you know, it's not obvious that this is always helpful to understanding a code base. But, you know, if you have code and spending a lot of time in some chunk of code, certainly that code matters, right? This is the key code that's doing all the work. Yeah. And so I would, I would think that it would be helpful for understanding those things, even if it turns out that, well, that, that work, this is as optimized as we can possibly make it. Uh, you know, I can't speed it up. Fine. But if your goal is just to understand, well, here's this program, where is it actually doing work? That seems like it would be useful. You know, you probably don't care that much about what it's doing at startup or at the end of execution. Uh, You probably don't care that much about, you know, rare cases, uh, at least if you're just starting to grapple with a code base. So it's an interesting perspective. I really... Like that was not our target for this system, and but uh, but it is. It's interesting to think about. It's a, it's provocative. Yeah, I was thinking about the technical paper that you wrote. There's like a, and we kind of mentioned this at the beginning of it. This uh, this there's like a subset of conferences that are more specific to computer science conferences, mm-hmm. and the technical paper describing this won the best paper award at OSDI, which I'm not familiar with. What's your experience of, of uh, these computer science conferences and the types of topics that they get into versus like, say, people would be more familiar with like PyCon or other Python-specific conferences? Yeah, so so OSDI is one of the two big quote-unquote systems conferences in, in academic uh, computing. So, you know, if you're a computer scientist and you have new results that you want to publish and, uh, you know, you think they're important, you try to get them published in these, you know, these top most selective venues. So, you know, you've probably heard of like Nature Magazine or Science Magazine or, you know, New England Journal of Medicine. This is a similar sort of thing. Like, you know, these are high, highly prestigious, highly selective venues uh, for publishing research. So, you know, the difference between publishing research and, and and, you know, giving a talk in an industry conference is that, you know, industry conferences are not really necessarily about something that's new, Mm. like a new idea uh, or a technical advance. Like if you have something that just has a better user interface or it's just better in some way, provide some functionality, even if the functionality is well known, in the scientific literature, having a useful tool or telling people about the tool or showing them how to use it. And all of these things are valuable, right? So, you know, I'll try to give you an example. I don't know if you've heard of MapReduce from back in the day at Google. Yeah, so, you know, the MapReduce paper appeared at OSDI, which is the same conference. Either OSDI or SOSP, there's these two uh, systems conferences. The paper describing TensorFlow appeared at OSDI, right? So, There are, you know, these conferences often have papers that are about big systems, often deployed by industry, but that have some deep technical innovation. Okay. And so, yeah, so novelty is is a requirement uh, for scientific technical (laughs) conferences. Okay, that makes sense, yeah. Not so much of like learning something or teaching something per se, it's more like this is a discovery and this is what's unique about it in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, that that said, I mean, at these conferences, they often will also have tutorials. Okay. You know, like, you know, we had, we were talking about this earlier because of Chris Latner. So LVM, I remember there are LVM tutorials. <laughs> and so okay. it's like, well, you want to use LVM in your research, come and take this tutorial. And so these things will be co-located with the conference, maybe the first, like a day or two before there'll be workshops and other things like this. So these conferences serve different purposes, but the the main technical conference is really about the um, the scientific contribution. Yeah. 
I won't dig into Mojo per se, but I'm thinking about other potential things that have happened in the Python world and data science world that are kind of novel things happening here, like the idea of Apache Arrow as a back end. Is that something that uh, would be suggested by a system like that that you have that would it look at the way that the data is being stored and the data types and suggest that maybe you're have things in an inefficient format? Is that something that could come come across as far as advice from looking at profiling the code? It's a good question. I mean, I think the, so, you know, the these large language models, right, are trained on GitHub and on uh, Stack Overflow and on all this stuff, right? And so they get access to all of this code. If you have something that is relatively new or something that just doesn't have many code examples out there, the large language models really don't have much to say okay. because they haven't been trained on it. So I, I don't recall exactly when Pyro got integrated with Pandas, but I, it may be too new hmm. uh, in terms of training data. But it's definitely something we could check out. You know, we, we do absolutely see it doing great optimizations with Pandas. Some of the things that I should add, th- this is what's coming, the stuff that my student is working on. You know, it sometimes comes up with optimizations that are wrong. Okay. Right, like it, uh, it comes up with optimizations that actually slow things down, and so we have a system now that actually does a bunch of stuff to vet the proposed optimizations to make sure they're still doing the same thing as the original, uh, and to verify that the optimizations actually achieve the optimizations in the desired dimension. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Like, <laughs> I mean, that that is one of the problems with the the models is uh, they potentially can put mixed ideas together. I guess that's something that human beings do too. I don't necessarily agree with the whole term of hallucination. Right. But um, I'm trying to think of the other one. Confabulation, maybe. I, I was just going <laughs> to use that word. That's that's yeah. great. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, I think that this sort of, you know, or dreaming right. that it does. One of the things that we see sometimes, which is, is kind of entertaining and also telling, is that it will propose code with APIs that are non-existent. Mm. And, Boy, you look at those APIs and you're like, man, that would be a great API. I would love to have that function call. You're you're right. That would be an awesome function call. However, it does not exist. Thanks for the suggestion. Yes. And it's yeah. like, just use magic F. And you're like, oh, but there is no yeah. such magic F. Please do something else. Yeah, we had a recent uh, issue with that. And PyCoders were, an article was suggested to us. And the middle of it was about this particular Rust linter thing called Rough. Mm-hmm. And the article that was published by this particular person, the middle of body of it had just a complete confabulation. <laughs> it was pretty crazy. It's like, oh, you can create your own rules by doing this. And it's like, that's nowhere in the documentation. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty wild. And so I, I can see how that stuff kind of happens. But yeah, to have somebody eventually scratch their shin and go, yeah, actually, that's kind of a novel idea there <laughs> right, <laughs> that was yeah. confabulated, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, one of the first things that bit a bunch of my uh, my fellow researchers was they went looking for citations to, to work. They're like, oh, t- tell me about papers that do X and Y. And it will gleefully report a whole bunch of papers that do these things. And these papers are entirely made up. Yeah, uh, like that's it, weird. It never, it just, uh, well, you know, I mean, I think this is all fixable, uh, to be honest, because it can obviously go out to the, to the internet and find things and verify whether they exist. You know, you yeah, can yeah, tie yeah. this to search and do all of these things. So. Yeah, maybe like a a system of, you know, footnotes or whatever you want to call it, you know, of, of documenting like 
where did these ideas come from? Like, you know, if if that's possible in in some sort of system citations, almost the same way that you really would like to have artwork or other things that are being generated have some kind of watermarks or other kinds of things just to say, hey, this can't just run by itself without us knowing kind of what's happening, that there should be some uh, right. some notations of like, well, this is the chain of thought that happened here. But that's the problem with the black box, though, I guess, is, you know, is there a way to streamline that in a way to have it do that? I don't know. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think it, in some cases, no, but in some cases, yes. So I think okay. in the situation where you are dealing with code, we are in a kind of super privileged position because we can always run the code. We can test the code. Right. We can see, right. does True. the code do what it's supposed to do? <laughs> right. With English, this is a lot harder, right? You're just like, yeah, hey, yeah. you know, oh, you know, I imagined a blah, blah, blah. And you're like, well, does blah, blah, blah exist? That's a harder problem than just running Python code and comparing the results. Yeah, it's so. <laughs> Emery, I have these questions I like to ask of everybody. And the first one is, what's something that you're excited about that's happening in the world of Python? So, good question. So, I I mean, I'm definitely excited about, probably obvious, about large language models sure. and their potential for improving the developer experience. This is something my lab is uh, is working on you know, full steam ahead. Uh, we've put out a number of different projects for Python, um, as well as some other things uh, that incorporate AI. So we have a thing okay. called ChatDBG, which incorporates large language models into your debugger. So you can take, uh, it actually works for LDB or GDB, so it works for native code, but it works for PDB as well. And you can you know, you run your code in a debugger and you get an exception or you get a, you know, a signal or something, uh, you can now type in why. Oh, cool. And you type in why and it goes off and it comes up with a root cause analysis and proposes effects. Nice. And so that's my favorite of them. We have, uh, we also have a thing for automatically commenting your Python code and inferring types that we call commentator. We have a very provocative one, which I think is mostly just just poking at people. I don't want to say trolling, but I guess I've just said it. <laughs> so we call it Python S. So Python S apparently was the name of the Oracle at Delphi, uh, which I did not know. Wow, interesting. Right, exactly. So, so Python S, you write a function with a Python S decorator and you just give it a spec uh, and you give it tests. So an English language spec or a natural language, doesn't have to be English. And then you give it an empty body and then it generates the function for you. Are you putting that like in doc string style or how are you yep, yep, doing exactly. it? Yep, exactly. Okay. Yep, doc string style. And then we have, this is not in the, the repo yet, but we also have these things called property-based tests. So if you know about Hypothesis, Hypothesis is this testing tool that does fuzzing to try to find bugs in some properties about your code. Like if you have a sort function, you know, one of the properties would be everything is in sorted order. Right, so that's an obvious. Yeah, give it, give it everything like that. Yeah, okay. and so yeah. you give it that kind of a spec, uh, and then it'll generate a bunch of inputs and test them. Hmm. And so we can do basically all of the coding without the coding. So you write a spec, you write the test, you write some properties, and then it goes off and generates code that is correct with respect to those specs and the the uh, the tests. That's fun. You guys have been busy. <laughs> yes, but it's it's exciting times. Yeah, yeah. So what's something you want to learn next? This doesn't have to be about programming. could be about anything. I've had a couple of people talk about cooking recently. What's something that you're interested in learning? Hmm. So, I mean, I have to say I'm, I'm 
I constantly feel like I'm learning new things. Sure. Yeah. With just the nature of the job of being a researcher, always learning more about machine learning. Um, okay. But uh, but let's let's talk about something else. I have this long-standing desire to learn Hungarian. Okay. That probably is never going to happen. I've I've learned to speak a few Romance languages. I, I lived in Spain for uh, some stretches. I grew up in in Florida, so I like came by it reasonably naturally. And French, and I I love Italian, love Italian food. Um, I've I've studied a little Italian. Wouldn't mind learning more Italian. But my dad was Hungarian. I have Hungarian family, and but the boy, the language is just brutally difficult. It's pretty rough. <laughs> it's rough. It's rough. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I mentioned to you earlier that I had moved to Hawaii for a while, and when I was moving there and looking at potentially job positions i i said all right i'm gonna learn japanese and uh yeah that one was a challenge <laughs> yeah i got pretty far but um when it got into all the different forms of written i was like oh this is kind of overwhelming and ended up not being necessarily the skill that i needed at the time but but still interesting and, and fascinating to look at you know a lot of really cool japanese media and stuff and having a, a little better aspect of it but yeah it's not as easy as transitioning between those romance languages <laughs> no no i mean i i you know my family lived in barcelona for a stretch uh and i studied catalan my kids were going to school and everything was in catalan and you know uh it was so much easier i can't even imagine i mean versus japanese you have such a head start with a romance language yeah <laughs> even just as an english speaker you already know so many words in latin right right like university that's that's a latin <laughs> word like and exactly. so you just change the endings and you've got that ready to go yeah but yeah, I, I yeah it would be, but it's always fun to use them. What what techniques are you going to use to learn it? So to learn Hungarian, I mean, I think this is something I'm interested in doing. I don't know if I'm going to have the time to do it. It's so hard. The <laughs> words don't stick in my head. It's really difficult. Yeah, but um, you know, I wouldn't mind spending some time learning Portuguese. I find Portuguese it's it's a pretty challenging Romance language. Yeah, uh, to be honest, not like Romanian, but it's a, it's a the. Uh, phonology of Portuguese is pretty different. And then you have Brazilian versus, uh, you know, the actual like peninsular Portuguese. Yeah, yeah. You know, hoping to spend some time in Portugal soon. I wouldn't mind being able to speak a little better than I can. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I mean, honestly, what I do with these things is I just have some grammar books and I just okay. go through them and then I try to listen to stuff. Uh, it's yeah. actually fairly easy to read stuff written in other Romance languages, but uh, but it's, you know, what kills you especially like French. Like if you, you know, the, the, you can see a word in French and then hear the word in French. And it's yeah, like- the pronunciations it, are crazy. It's completely <laughs> off. There's no relationship whatsoever. Um, so you just, some of these things you just have to like memorize. Yeah, yeah, totally. So how can people follow the work that you do online? I guess you and your your team there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so we have a bunch of projects on GitHub. So the, the name of our group is plasma-umass. Okay. So you can just go to github.com slash plasma-umass, uh, and that lists a bunch of our repositories. We have a, a web page with a bunch of videos and whatnot, which is plasma-umass.org. Plasma, by the way, stands for Programming Languages and Systems in Massachusetts. Okay. So that's <laughs> the, the acronyms. Nice. We have, uh, you know, I have my own GitHub page as well, just, you know, Emery Berger. And I am still a little bit on twitter i refuse to rename it in my head it's just yeah yeah me anyway <laughs> i'm on threads now i'm on mastodon 
we'll see if any of that really built up enough steam to replace the uh, the, the site that used to be Twitter. <laughs> Yeah, I hear you. So it's a kind of a sad note when we get to that point in the show. And lately, it's like, ugh. Yes. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, Emery, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been really fantastic to talk to you. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks so much for having me. I had a great time. I want to thank Emery Berger for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to The Real Python Podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.